am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Pot Stirrer Podcast. Welcome to Pot Stirrer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. Today, we have a very special guest. Allison K. Garcia is a licensed professional counselor with a passion for writing. She is a member of Shenandoah Valley Writers, Virginia Writers Club, and is municipal liaison for Shenandoah Valley NaNoWriMo. Latina at heart, Allison has absorbed the love and culture of her friends and family and has used her experiences to cast a glimpse into the journey of undocumented Christians. She is a highly decorated author who has written the novels Virvir El Dream and Finding Amor. The novella Navidad en Familia, featured in the 2018 box set A Merry Navidad, as well as a number of engaging short stories. Allison has been on the show before and each time has been a great experience. I have enjoyed it and I know many of you have enjoyed these conversations as well. Allison is returning today to discuss her upcoming book, Finding Seguridad, which is highly anticipated. Welcome back, Allison. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here today. I'm excited that you're here. So let's jump right in. All right. Before we jumped on, you had said that you describe your books as stories of love, hope, and faith for marginalized Christians. From having read your work, I think that makes perfect sense. Now, for you, when you say this, what does that description encompass? What does that mean to you? Well, I think for me, I have been just as my my journey as a Christian, as I've been growing as a Christian, I've just been learning about, I think, the way Christianity has been viewed in America or and sometimes in the world and the way what Christian, you know, quote unquote Christian means in kind of the the popular um mainstream way and how that actually has left out a whole bunch of people, which is kind of the opposite of the gospel. When I think it's Paul that has that dream. It's either Peter or Paul, it's one of the Ps. He has that dream that set where he's have you know, he sees kind of like a heavenly host or something. And he realizes there's no longer man nor woman, nor unclean or unclean food, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that was like, yes, now the Gentiles can, can be part of the kingdom as well. And so the entire like purpose of Jesus coming for everybody, not just those who were quote unquote, like chosen from way back. And so I think when I think of marginalized Christians, I think about like, that's how it started, you know? That's how, how things started. Jesus went to those who were marginalized. He went, he visited those who were in prison, the people that were um, viewed as lepers, or they were literal lepers, I guess. But, like, you know, nowadays yeah. it would be people that are viewed as lepers. Um, women who were, you know, looked down upon in society. Even unclean women, you know, uh, people from, from places uh, where, where um, there were rivalry with the Jews, like the Samaritans, for example, he went, that was his mission. 
you know, he sat down with people who were viewed as sinners. And I think that is like the main story of the gospel from, from my point of view is love and loving everyone. And what I've been learning um, as I've been growing in it as, as a Christian is that I feel like we've gotten to a place where, where we're as a quote unquote Christian, you know, as in the mainstream Christian, we're leaving out everybody. And that's the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. And, and I feel like it right now with everything with um, the way the country is, is crazily divided and the way people are clinging on to things and calling themselves Christians. And it's like, so not Christian at all. It's like the opposite of the gospel. And yet they're clinging on to it as uh, some kind of ghost of the past or something that's, that's not even relevant to what Christianity actually is. And so I feel like almost like the people that are marginalized um, in Christianity are are maybe the ones that are living out the the gospel more, and so I kind of want to highlight that and be like, hey, you know, this is, you know, we're going in the wrong direction, <laughs> mainstream Christianity. Let's look outward. Stop looking inward. Look outward to to the margins, to where people are. That's what Jesus did. He went out to the margins of society, and he said that that was like the the one sheep. He went out and he sought and he brought back it. He brought back to, to, to them. I don't know. And so that's just kind of what I think of marginalized Christians, just as a kind of a um, explanation of in my head, I think people of color are currently marginalized. You know, I think um, the LGBTQ community uh, is marginalized. I think people that speak different languages are marginalized and people with disabilities mental health issues gosh you know like it could just be anything anyone whose views is different really kind of if you don't fit that if if you don't fit that white christian white um kind of almost middle class but it could be lower middle class you're you're viewed as on the outside looking in and that's really not at all what the gospel's about yeah that that definitely makes sense and i think one of the things that I've talked about a lot in my work is because I tend to focus a lot on white evangelicalism just because like mm-hmm. that's sort of my religious background. Yeah. And I think there's there's that relationship to power oh, yeah. where it's like there's that desire for for power or to sort of retain power just because historically sort of like that dominant white evangelical tradition has had political power. And I think especially with marginalized groups being more vocal in our society. And now like we're hearing more from people of color and from the LGBTQ plus community and a lot of these different groups that were not heard in the past. And I think it's in a sense, maybe it's threatening and so there is that desire to, you know, to kind of be exclusive and to be like, okay, that's them and this is us kind of thing. Right. And I think that's exactly one of the reasons why Jesus came. And that's what was happening with the Jews. There were all these laws, all these things you had to follow. And what it was, was just keeping themselves in and then other people out. Um, and even like casting out people in their own thing. And it was all about guilt. It was the message was being missed, I think, greatly. Mm -hmm. And so I've just been 
you know, I'm kind of in a in a stage of in my in my new church. They've talked about we had this whole sermon series on like deconstruction and reconstruction of your faith, where you you're learning new things and either you totally reject the new stuff, or sometimes you want to just toss out every you chuck everything, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater, and you chuck everything that you knew, and you're like, no, that's not true. I'm just going to take on this new thing. Um, but really, like like taking with reconstruction, you know, deconstructing and reconstructing your faith, you you look at what what you have and like the experiences you've gained. And you take what you want and you and you kind of drop the stuff that's no longer true or doesn't hold true for you anymore. And that's kind of where I am right now. And I think that's what probably makes me marginalized. Um, <laughs> you know, I've dropped a lot of some of the old things that I believed because they, I, I read more things and I opened my mind and, and, and I learned that, that that was not true. That wasn't really, the, those were things that were not accurate. That's not what the gospel's about. That definitely makes a lot of sense. And this kind of flows into my next question. Mm -hmm. So this is something I think about sometimes. And when I'm talking to fellow creatives, this is something I like to ask them, like whether they're writers or podcasters or just any type of content creator. So I think a huge part of growth as a creative is time and life experience. So, for example, I can look at who I was when I first started Potstar Podcast back in 2017 and like what the podcast looked like. And there have been changes over time to both the podcast and for myself on my end, like wrestling with my Christian faith. And so like what you were talking about with your new church, the deconstructing and reconstructing, wrestling with that, with what my faith looks like and figuring out what that looks like at this point in my life. What does it mean for me to say like, okay, I'm a Christian. Right. And then as far as for my podcast, truly finding my voice when it comes to the podcast and refining over time, the reasons why I'm doing this. So my question for you is when you think about the evolution of your work and yourself as a content creator from your early works to the writing process for finding Seguridad. Yeah. Like, how do you think your work has evolved and how do you think that you've evolved as an author and as a person? Well, you know, I love this question. Um, so because I have evolved greatly, I think, I think I've come a long way since I started writing. And I've written since I was little. Like, I, I can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't writing. You know, obviously I've grown <laughs> since I could write when I was six or something, you know. Um, <laughs> but um, and I was thinking about this just the other day about how my view had changed from when I first wrote Finding Amor back in 2014 and then when I started editing it in, in 2018. And gosh, you know, like I think in, when I wrote it in 2014, I had this, the first draft during NaNoWriMo, I had this vision in my head, which I, I think like never quite sat right with me, where I had, and if anybody has read Finding Amor, um, go and read it, and there's going to be spoilers, obviously, because there's book two here, right here, <laughs> yeah, so if you don't want any spoilers, <laughs> you know, stop listening now, read the book, and go back and finish this podcast, um, <laughs> but like, originally, in the original first draft of Finding Amor, 
Carlos was redeemed. He, the experience where he almost froze to death outside, he realized that he could change and, and somehow magically the church helped with that. Somehow, you know, it was just like all fine and dandy because he could, because he had Jesus. And, um, and, and that was sort of based on just this, this, this couple that I knew where, um, it had been like a, a domestic violence that situation, I think, and he had stopped using drugs and drinking and he was, you know, he had kind of ref- reformed and been redeemed. And I was like, wow, that's really great. Like, cause that never happens. Um, <laughs> and so like flash forward to when I start editing it, like I, I, I didn't touch it for years, you know, for four years, I didn't touch it. And cause I, when I would read it, I was like, uh, and then I, you know, and, and I don't, and I didn't, capture why that was until like 2018 where I sat down with it and I was you know talking to my my uh editor and I was like should I just scrap this like I just don't it doesn't feel right and I felt like in my head I started thinking like this is perpetuating domestic violence just by writing it in this way stay with the person and he'll he he will change or she will change and I I was like I don't feel good about that that doesn't feel right like there's something that doesn't feel right about that and so she was like, you know, I forget what she had said. And I had had it in my acknowledgement, acknowledgements of my first, of Finding more. But she pretty much was like, you know, pray about it. And, and kind of, I forget exactly, but she said wonderful things. And I can't, I quoted it and now I don't remember. So I, that's what I did. Like on the way home from dropping off my son and my mom's, um, on the way to work, I prayed. And God gave me this other story, this story about, about Anna and Emmanuel and Carlos, where she recognized that she it was a dangerous situation, and she left. You know, she she's they escape with their life. That's the end of book one. That's the end of the Buscando Home series. That's the end of book one. The end of Finding Amor. And so when you start finding Seguridad, that's what's happening. They're running. They're running for their lives. They're afraid that he is going to wake up and come find them and kill them. And that's how the book starts with just this immense fear. And, you know, and then it, it progresses through, throughout books two. And then there's going to be, you know, book three is already written in first draft form. So not, not able to be viewed at this point. <laughs> so <laughs> very, very loosely written. But, you know, it's not at all like, like the original Finding a More was going to be. Because, and part of it was as I was like doing the work for Finding a More, as I was editing it, and then in 2019, when I started to have my revelations about my life and where I was and what was wrong um, and what, what was going on and this whole revelation that I had, I, I, I realized, you know, as I had written book three and, and as I was going and giving talks about for finding, finding Amor, I realized that it was part of my, my process as, as just me uh, realizing that I myself was in a domestic violence situation, that I myself was in an abusive marriage that I needed to get out of, that it was not a healthy space for me. And in a way, I was like Anna, and I had always identified kind of with Lauren because of the infertility stuff, uh, which I went through for a lot of years before I had my son. But as I was reading and editing and writing, I realized that, 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 that was me. And, and originally like in 2014, when I wrote it, I had the things I had been learning from my church, my old church, 
the man is the head of the household and you need to stick with it even if it's not good and if you just pray enough if you just believe enough like it things will change you know if he just comes to church if all all this garbage you know that they teach people that was being like fed to me that was keeping me in this relationship that was very dangerous and, and not good and as i was coming out of that and realizing I need to leave this situation. This is not a good, healthy situation for me. I have to get out of this. I think that editing and and working on my books and, and kind of realizing that I could leave this situation, that this was unhealthy, that the ideas that were being fed to me, that that those were not the truth. And I had known that as a counselor for a lot of years, like that I hadn't even labeled it in my head as emotional abuse for a lot of years. And I didn't, I, I just, I just had this hope. And that's, I mean, that's what keeps people in is you just hope that it won't, you know, that it, things will get better, that things will be fine, that that's not really, you know, it's just because he's working too hard or something like that. And it's, that's not, that's not, I mean, it's not true, but it's common to feel like that. And so for me, seeing Anna escape and leave and writing that, I think was my, I think it was God's way of being like, hey, you know, you you can do this. This is the thing you can do. And, um, you know, I was able to leave. And it's, it was a scary circumstance. Because I realized when I talked to my, you know, there was, there was two things. One, I also, you know, in that same time, you know, since we're putting all the cards on the table, at the same time, I realized that I had done a lot of journaling and realized that also that, that I was, that I'm gay. Um, and so that's like, a, that was also like a huge thing that in the church that I was in um, was you know, a sin and meant that I was sinning and all this stuff. And when I went to my pastor and my pastor's wife um, and told them, they pretty much like were really afraid that I was going to hell and wanted me to, to go to these church meetings pretty much, I think, to pray the gay away. They had, they formed a committee to, to talk to me about the biblical truths. And when I told them that I didn't want to do that and that I, I they needed to not talk to, cause they said they were going to like talk to my, my ex-husband mm-hmm. and tell him that I, you know, was planning to leave him. And I said that, that, that could be dangerous for both me and my child, because I know the rates of like homicides in like, the, the highest rate of homicides, domestic violence is when the woman hasn't left yet and ends up getting killed. And I said, this, that could put us in danger. And they yeah. said, well, you know, that's how it is. I guess we could maybe talk to, we could wait until you leave before we talk to him about you being gay. So they were going to out me to him and also wow. tell them that I was planning to leave. And I thought they were more willing to, to let me and my son possibly get murdered rather than believe a new thing. To, to believe it, a new truth, right? They're holding on to these these patriarchal ideas that were incorrectly written in the Bible, and they were willing to just let that happen um, because of what they believed in, and and how misguided is that, you know, and dangerous for so many people. And so, you know, as I'm writing my books, I have that in my head. I have what I went through in my head. I have these things that I've learned in my head that 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 stuff that that that's not okay that is not who Jesus is that's not why he came that's not what christianity is about and so 
my work has evolved because I have evolved. That that makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like it sounds like there's been a lot that's happened and a lot that you've gone through in terms of your journey. That's why it took two years to get this book out instead of one. I took a hiatus. <laughs> I had a couple things going on. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes it's like that where life happens. And I think sometimes when life happens, it can get like when it comes to our faith and then how we're relating to our faith communities and everything like that, how things get more complex. Yeah. Well, I was and, worried too. I, I wanted to, I was afraid to give, you know, that thinking that I might have to give up writing because I would be shunned from my Christian writer friends and from my, from the Christian readers, because I was afraid that, that I, I would be shunned for being gay and that no one would, would take my work seriously anymore. And that I would be viewed as somebody who's living in sin and, you know, and, and all this stuff. And I think there's going to be probably chunks of people that do view me that way. And I think what I've learned so far, apart from my church that excommunicated me and including my former best friend, not accepting and some Christian writer friends who, um, you know, were not really super close friends, but who kind of also has, have, have rejected me in that way. Mostly, though, people have been pretty great <laughs> um, and happy for me that I am living my authentic self. And I believe now more than ever that God loves me just as I am. And so I think hearing that from my writer friends, and it's so funny because it was actually my, my secular writing friends that were like, don't give up. My editor, she said, you're going to write some books and that they're going to give people hope because I also plan to write, you know, lesbian Christian fiction and, and, the, and like as another, you know, uh, some books, I have a book in mind already. What Maggie, my editor said was someone's going to read a, a work that I have uh, from being gay and from being a Christian. And, and she said it was going to save someone's life. And I know that's true because people kill themselves all the time because of this stuff. And so, you know, I think like, you know, that just, I, I'm like, yes, you're right. I have to keep going. I can't give it up. And, um, and that's why, you know, I've edited this book and that's why I'm going to publish it. Um, it's not, this one doesn't necessarily talk about, you know, LGBTQ plus people, you know, I mean, not that the readers know about yet. <laughs> to come in book three and four or whatever it'll be the shoot off of it but um you know even if you feel like people are gonna shun you for but if, as long as you know that this is what god wants you to do you just gotta keep going that's that's so true and i mean honestly i hear this so first of all i'm sorry that you've had to go through all the things that you've gone through to get to this point right because i just i mean i can't imagine oh, how that would be Mm-hmm. It was hard. At the same time, I'm happy that that you're living in your truth. And that's the thing, like, that's so important to be able to, well, number one, be safe. Put yourself in a position where you and your son are, are safe. Yeah. And I would imagine that that aspect, there's some inspiration from that that goes into finding Securidad. Yes. And then also being able to be honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. 
as far as your sexual orientation and and who you love, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's a good thing. Yeah, last year I did a two-part series on on um sexual orientation and Christianity. The first was specifically talking about sexual orientation mm-hmm. and the second part was on gender identity. Oh, cool. And I talked about how with sexual orientation, I focused on, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the clobber verses. Right, yeah. I and did a whole lot of reading as I was coming out. I read a lot of books, like um, what the Bible really says about homosexuality, which was like a very thick theological book. I read yeah. God and the Gay Christian. Um, I read uh, I read Torn. I read Undivided. I read, whew, what did I not read more? <laughs> I think, oh, Shameless by Nadia Boltz Weber. Oh, that was a good one, too. Yeah, yeah, she, so many, yeah she's so good. Many yeah. But yeah, yeah, like verses, I, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, like I, you know, and that was the thing, like I went through and talked about the different, like the different clobber verses and some of the background and like just how like the interpretations have changed over time. Right. And how this current interpretation that, talks about like homosexuality is when you look at the historical timeline it's a relatively recent right. way that it's it was, been interpreted it was like the 1800s and then even in 1980 they they made more changes in the in the certain bibles mm-hmm. yeah and so you know and so i mean the point i'm making i guess is just that within churches there are these immutable truths <laughs> right you know and i say that with air quotes mm-hmm <laughs> This idea that like, okay, this is how it is. This is how it's always been. And, you know, that's not necessarily true. And I think sometimes it's easier to hold on to that orthodoxy or I wouldn't even, I don't even know if I would even call it that because of it being probably more recent than people think. But holding on to, to these viewpoints that at the end of the day are not, are not loving, are not like at the core of what Jesus wants for us and what how Jesus wants for us to relate to each other. Exactly. And it's just, you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, this issue was the thing that, I mean, of all the issues, racism, other types like bigotry, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. the thing that pushed me into getting away from evangelicalism like i'm still a christian but i don't consider myself an evangelical right the tipping point was this issue right yeah i think i think yeah it's a very hot button issue and one side is very set on that you know and the other side is very set i mean right now i'm I'm going to a a methodist church so i went back to my roots um and and the Methodist church itself is divided. Now, the church I'm in is, like, the best church ever. I love it. It's called Rise. I love it so much. There's, awesome. like, I oh, I love it so much. Like, and I went in. There's only been two times in my whole life where I have felt the calm peace that I feel like God has given me where I'm, like, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is where I'm meant to be. The first time was when I walked into my, the grad school that I decided to go to. It was like number five on my list, but I walked in and I felt this overwhelming sense of peace and like, this is where I needed to be. 
And the other time that that happened is when I, I went to rise for the first time. I walked in and I just felt it. I felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. And, and I, and you know, and I'm so glad that I went. I went before I stopped going to my other church because I talked to this, pa- this pastor named Debbie somewhere in Iowa. I somehow, like, she, I was, I had contacted her about a podcast in like 2017 or something. And I somehow, in the back of my brain, it's so weird how things happen like this, you know. <laughs> um, somehow in the back of my brain, I remember seeing a thing, like on her signature thing, that said LGBTQ plus affirming. And when I was going through my stuff and I was like, I felt like, how can I still be a Christian if I'm gay? Because I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm gay. Like, <laughs> you know, like I'm just, you know, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that I'm gay. So I... Because I'd been doing journaling at that point, I was like fifty thousand words in. It was a big journal, <laughs> and um, I was well, you like, say well, you like to write. <laughs> I do like to write. That's right. So, but like, I mean, so I contacted her, and I was like asking for a friend. Um, <laughs> what are some resources? So she gave me all those books that I mentioned, and I started reading them. And I was like, and I prayed to God after I read them. I I prayed and I said, God, is this how you made me? And I felt he said yes and that's when I accepted it that's when I accepted that I was gay and then the journey was well what do I do about this you know where am I going after this you know what is what does that even mean you know and it was very scary time I was very I had panic attacks it was a very scary time to not know what was going on and then to be realizing what's happening in my that I was in an abusive marriage along with that was just uh so much so much stress and anxiety all at once and so uh, she said, you know, if you ever wanted to talk, I could call. And so I was like, that might be good. And um, I had also set up therapy because therapy is good. Everybody should do it. Uh, I'm a therapist, yes. so I'm biased. But like, <laughs> so, you know, I had one episode, uh, one one session of, of therapy and then there was a snowstorm. And so I was calling Pastor Debbie the day before my next therapy session. And thank goodness, because there was a there was um, a snowstorm and I, my next session was canceled. So it was bad. I had finally like opened my mouth to say, I think I might be gay out loud for the first time to anybody. Um, and it was so scary, you know? And so with pastor Debbie, I said the same thing, you know, and she, she was so loving. And she said, she said, you know, at my church, which is like 90% LGBTQ plus that a lot of people go to both churches at once. And so that was what got me to, to, to go to rise and to start to realize and to see other people like myself that could be fully participating in church and be, it's like, it's, it's like you were just loved exactly as you were. It doesn't matter. Like no holds bars, anything. And it was just, it was, it was so beautiful to be in a space like that where you were just loved for exactly how you were in that exact moment. And I feel like everybody needs something like that. And I don't know why I started in this realm, but that's, that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, and, and that's the thing, like, it's, it's awesome to be able to, in that, in the midst of trying to figure everything out and mm-hmm. being able to find a community that accepts you. Exactly. Like that's, that's so important. I think it is. And so I mean, I think that's how I'm going into my writing this time. You know, part of it is me realizing that I needed to love myself. And you'll see some of that echoed into the book. You know, part of it is, is, you know, also the book really speaks heavily about systemic racism 
which is like another journey I've been on learning about that as well. In the book, Lauren and Peter kind of are starting to realize about systemic racism and and doing like because they're they're around people of color and and you know I think one of the things that happens um, with with white people like I myself am white is that we are insular without realizing it a lot of times and there is an entire other world happening that we have no idea is happening and it's just it's so crazy when you are I I think that's I mean I, I don't think it's cool for me to say woke. But like, I think that's, I mean, when I, when I think, so I say awakened because <laughs> I don't want to take on a term, but like, I mean, I, it is very accurate because all of a sudden you have awakened, you are woke to this world that you had no idea was happening all around you all the time. And you're like, how was I so blind? And, and so that's kind of what's happening in the book with Lauren and Peter they're like, their eyes are opened. They have been awakened. They're woke now, you know. They're like, what is this? And it's so scary. It's very overwhelming to to be in that moment and to be there. And I think, you know, people, that happens. Um, I've seen that happen to a lot of my friends. They're like, children in cages? How is that a thing? And I'm like, that's been a thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or like, like, what? Black people being murdered by cops? And I'm like, that's also been a thing. Um, you know, like yeah. but you don't know it until you know it, until you see it, until you meet people, until you watch videos, until you watch movies, until you read books, until you are learning and you, you allow yourself to, to open your eyes, you have no idea that stuff's happening. And and then when you do, you're like, oh, you crap, I'm going to use nicer words. <laughs> you know, oh no, how is this happening in the world? This isn't the world that I thought I knew. What do I do? Um, and so for, for Lauren and Peter, when we're talking about finding seguridad, finding safety or security, right now that, that's where their feeling of chaos is, is because the world as they knew it is no longer as they knew it. And then for Carlos, you know, his family has been ripped away from him, you know. Um, and so he's feeling chaos as well. Ana and Emmanuel are feeling chaos for, for the fear for their lives and all this stuff. and. It's like, how do you find safety? Where do you go for that? And and I feel that deeply because that was, that's been like the last year and a half of my life, Re- having all these realizations and seeing where you're at and opening your eyes to things is really scary. Your new book, Finding Seguridad. <laughs> Seguridad means safety or security in Spanish. So it's the second installment of your series, Buscando Home, the first being Finding a Moor, which was a riveting read. I enjoyed it. My husband enjoyed it, too. Awesome. (laughs) You've talked a little bit in in, in our conversation about finding Seguridad. Are there any themes within the book that you say are unique to this installment? Looking into the systemic racism is one of the main themes also it, it, it you know because like i said you know they're having this awakening lauren and peter that they're realizing this is happening and for me as a person that have i'm i'm on this journey of of awakening as well to, to systemic racism and what do i do about it i just side note i just took this really awesome anti-racism course it's so good um and so like you just keep learning it's like you can't learn enough 
you just keep learning more and more things about what's going on. And I feel like that's where that's where Lauren she kind of started there a little bit and finding a more, you know, she's at she's at the after school program and she sees all these kids and she's never really been in contact with with kids from like, you know, Muslim children or people from refugees or people that don't speak English. And it's very uncomfortable for her. But she gets all this love from them, you know, and she 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 realizes like she goes into it like wanting to help. It's kind of that white savior thing, you know. Um, that happens all the time and and what she finds is that actually like they helped more than than she helped them and I think that's often the case you know it was like you know she didn't know the impact that being in their lives was going to have on her and I think that's kind of a continuation of that into finding seguridad because she's around Emmanuel and Anna a lot more and her eyes are continuing to be open I'm just thinking about one scene in particular She's going with Emmanuel to a hardware store to get a present for Peter. And Emmanuel, who's eight, he's just there. He's he's looking at the, I don't know, some birdhouses or something. And uh, Lauren realizes the one of the clerks has been following Emmanuel around and watching him. And, you know, she she's like, and he goes, you know, uh, you know, don't touch that. That's really expensive, you know, and. Or something like that. I can't remember exactly how it starts. But she's like, you know, he's a very responsible little kid. And the guy's like, oh, you know, well, you have to keep your eyes on kids like him. And she flips out, you know, and um, because it's just she's never seen anything like that before. It's not something that's in her world. And all she knows is Emmanuel's this little kid that she loves. And and for someone to, to judge him like that, if. And um, when they go out to the car, you know, Emmanuel's like, you know, it's fine. You, you don't need to make the, a big scene like this, you know, and, and, or something. You know, he's like, this happens all the time. And she, like, breaks down because she just doesn't, that's not the world she lives in. She didn't know that that was happening. And so for, you know, there's things like that that just kind of happen in the story that uh, where she's just realizing what happens, what's going on with people of color. And I think some of that's happening in our world right now where 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 people are waking up and, and realizing that systemic racism is, is a legit thing that's happening with everything with the Black Lives Matter. Um, it becoming a, a, like a like a bigger movement. I live well, I live one hour from Charlottesville. On Juneteenth, we uh, my girlfriend and I drove through Richmond past the um, Stonewall Jackson monument. Uh, or Robert E. Lee. I don't know which one. I'm sorry. I'm really bad. Uh, one of the Confederate yeah. monuments. Yeah. <laughs> and the one that was central and had been had been tagged. And there was like a whole thing there. And it was very powerful to see it being taken back. And it's, da- it's down now. They took it down, I think. It was a huge thing. Like a giant, huge thing. And so as this is happening and people are realizing it, I, I kind of... I don't know, it just fit. Uh, that was already in the story, and it just it kind of worked out well. <laughs> that that's kind of, Lauren is also having that realization. So that's one of the themes. Another theme is, is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. which uh, Emmanuel has from his upbringing and from the stuff that's happening with Carlos, his crossing over the border and being, you know, and his immigration experience kind of camp or however you want to say it. And so he's got all this PTSD stuff 
I, I tried to make it as authentic as possible. And someone that had read my book, who is a sur- survivor of childhood trauma, said that she liked how authentic it was and how I got it right, how kids react. I made me sad for her, of course. I, I already knew that about her. But right. glad that I had captured that correctly in an authentic way. And one of the people that come back in this book is Sandra, who is Manuel's grandmother and Ana's mother. And so Sandra is was in the Guerra Civil, the, the war, in um, the Civil War in, in El Salvador. She was in El Salvador when that was this horrific war was happening. And so she has PTSD. Um, and that's why she left Ana. She, that's why she left El Salvador and left Ana behind and never went back. Because her PTSD overtook her and she got into um, substances and stuff. And so Sandra kind of comes back into the story in this in this book, and she's going to be. Um, she even has her. Uh, this is, this is a, a little like fun uh, fun reader fact in book three. She's going to have her own point of view, so that's exciting. Oh, neat! And so she has PTSD. Emmanuel has PTSD, and they, you know, she has learned how to treat hers, and so she is. The, she can she can also kind of give some wisdom to Anna and to Emmanuel. And so uh, I'm excited about that part. I really like Sandra. She's she's a sleeper character from book one that I was like so excited <laughs> to bring back. Awesome. <laughs> Has the current political and social climate for Latino immigrants and Latino Americans generally informed your current book? I mean, it sounds like it has. Is there anything you want, kind of want to expand as far as that? Or you want to expand on that a little bit? I mean, I think that it's a continuation. You know, if anybody's read other books of mine, Vivir el Dream or Finding Amor, they both talk about undocumented immigrants and the, the struggles of that. And I think Finding Seguridad is, it has the same stuff going on. You know, Ana, you know, is afraid to call the police. She's afraid that Carlos is going to, you know, find them and kill them. But she also is afraid to call the police because he has documents and she doesn't. And that happens a lot, you know? And so Mm. that's just one example. And one of my readers said, I would, I never have thought about how people would be afraid to call the police for that. And that's something I hear all the time when I talk to my friends who are undocumented or talk to my clients that are undocumented is that fear of calling um, because, you know, what if you call the police for help and then they, they end up, you know, deporting you from your family. And because that stuff happens, like, you know, um, that's no joke. That's the same reason. I mean, similar reason why people of color, I mean, just like, you know, especially like African Americans don't want to call or, or or black Americans don't want to call the police is because if you call the police, like, what if you get shot? It's that, what if the person that's supposed to help you instead does the opposite? It's scary. So I think, you know, it's similar in that realm that, that, um, what does being undocumented mean? How does that affect how you, uh, what you do when you're in a situation like Anison? Like, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how it is to be undocumented or an immigrant, period. But yeah, like that, when you talk about what goes through your head when calling the police, that's something that as, as a Black American, I can, I can identify with that uncertainty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's really scary. Yeah. It's not something that I have ever had to worry about, you know, and that's one of those, that's white privilege right there. You know, I haven't ever had to think twice if I needed to call the police. And yeah, I think that a lot of people don't, a lot of white people don't think about that. 
and that's one of my hopes when I write books, is that, one, that sometimes people will see themselves in my book, and, and they'll say, hey, there's books about people like me. Yeah. Or maybe they'll say, oh, you know, I had no idea this was happening, because I read something where they did studies, probably, I'm going to say Harvard, just because I want <laughs> I don't know where it was really, but like you know, they did they did scientific research someplace, some fancy school, and they found that um, reading fiction actually increases your empathy, um, especially when reading about other cultures, because you are putting yourself like I mean, generally speaking, when you read fiction, you you, you really get into it, you get into the characters, you know, you you're like in there, you're like you know, you've got you've got an iron in the fire now, like thinking like Harry Potter. Um, when, when, when Dumbledore, you know, like you're like Dumbledore, that's like my father almost. You know? <laughs> like you can no, see the pieces Harry, that are, you know, like yeah. everything. It's, yeah. it's, you get invested, you're invested. And so mm-hmm. like empathy, you get, you, you, you're like, wait, but why is it like, this is what I happened. This is what happened with maybe had a dream. They're like, but what about Linda? What's going to happen? You know, like, why did that happen? I didn't know this is happening. We need to figure something out. Why, why is this happening in the world? You know? And I was like, oh, good. Like people, yeah. You know, it's something that it's exciting for me. You know, and a hope that I have is that at least one person, you know, is is going to read it. You know, if it's just one person, that's fine. You know, but at least one person's going to read it, and they're going to be like, "Whoa!" And it's going to open their eyes to stuff, and they're going to open their heart. And that's kind of my hope for writing my books. So I know that immigrants and immigration issues, that's near and dear to your heart. It is. It's not just like you've talked to talk, you've walked the walk as well. Mm -hmm. You've been involved with rallies and events supporting immigrants in your community. Yes. Now we're in 2020 and 2020 is something else. (laughs) Sure is. Yeah. And so like my guess, my question is like from what you've seen, heard or experienced, how has 2020 with COVID-19 with the actions of the current president and the U.S. government in regards to immigration. How mm-hmm. has all that, at least from what you've seen and experienced, affected the Latino community in your region? It's really hard in a lot of different ways. I'm seeing a few different things. Like I think just in general, things that are going on with, with Black Lives Matter or also just the hatred toward people of color um, from the, the, the Trump administration. There's almost like three main groups that people seem to hate a lot um, in terms of people of color, like when, when it's on the Trump side of things, which is like black, Mexicans, and Muslims. They're like the worst of the worst in, in their eyes. And so it's very scary to be a, a person from one of those three communities um, right now. Uh, there's, a, there's a huge fear factor close by in town. That, uh, there's been two times, like, okay, so we have, I live in Harrisonburg, where we had a really awesome Black Lives Matter kind of quiet, um, it was like a silent march. And I saw video, I didn't go, um, because I, I found out about it like, t- like 30 minutes before it was happening. Um, I was like, no, I, it would have been cool. Um, I was a little scared, though, I will admit that, like, because, you know, the stuff had gone down in, in all the other places, too, that I was like, oh, pepper spray, it's a little scary. But um, there was a silent march, it was it was peaceful, there was... And it was, you know, there were some people that were not nice to them, but overall it was, it was, you know, it went well. And in the county where we live, there's been other 
uh, Black Lives Matters um, kind of protests or 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 kind of demonstrations and stuff where white nationalists have come and made a giant thing. I just heard about, um, I think it was Elkton, which is in the county near me. They had like a black, the students, and it was students from the high school. Same thing with uh, like one in Broadway, where it was the same thing. It's, a, it's like just part of the county, which is kind of more country, more rural. I mean, it happens in the cities, but also like in the county, there's more racism sometimes, or at least more out of overt racism. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more willing uh, and, to share that other. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that that's how they are. <laughs> uh-huh. And so, and Elkton, at least, is what I heard about from my anti-racism course that the uh, just a group of students of color from the high school gathered for Black Lives Matter, and I guess on the nationalist like Facebook pages or something, they were like, "The fascists are coming to town. You need to rally and come and save your country." And a bunch of, of white nationalists showed up with, like, machine guns, AK-47 and everything, and surrounded the group. Oh, no. You know, like, and, like, that was just, like, 30 minutes from where I live. It's, like, 10 minutes from where my mom lives. That's the kind of sentiment that's happening right now. And I'm sure, because right in this area, we have um, a higher Hispanic population. than we. It's, like, 16% Latino um, in the city, at least. And then um, Af- uh, black population is... Uh, probably closer to like five percent or something. Okay. And in the county, it's a lot whiter, um, but still, there's I think there's more Latinos. So I'm guessing that there was a lot of uh, both black and brown, kind of as it would say, people like people of color, mostly probably even more Latino. So I think it's scary, you know. If you, I mean, they just have, were having like a pro, like a very peaceful process, I think, with signs, and then people show up with like. AK-47s. That's some scary stuff right there. Oh, yeah. Also, right now, like with COVID, we have a huge percentage of our population of Latinos, and we have a lot of people from Iraq, so the Iraqi population, and because we have a refugee resettlement office over here, so a lot of the Latinos and the, and it's also a, a very high number of Black people as well, People of color are, um, especially from those three groups, are having more cases of COVID than than white, and it's because of the poultry plants generally, um, yeah. and the pl- and because they have to keep working, and they're not the administration doesn't let them socially distance, um, because they need to get all that turkey out so we can eat it, you know, like <laughs> it's yeah, so, it's so stupid. Uh, one of my clients <laughs> from the Iraqi community said like all of the Iraqi community, like uh, so many families were sick with children and just. Like a lot of people had COVID nineteen, and and it was had it had torn through the the Muslim community in our area because of I think a lot of them work in the poultry plants um, or in the plants where you're in tight spaces and there's you can't socially distance, and it's uh, so I think, and I think that that it being kind of uh, I don't like the 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 equity you know, being unequal like that is one of the things that COVID has, it has affected in that way. Also right now with like going back to school, generally, while there are a lot of people of color that, you know, are in the middle class, uh, upper middle class realm, because of all the systemic racism, a lot of them are in the kind of more lower poverty levels, which generally means they need to go to work. 
they have to have, and maybe both pa- parents need to work. Um, they don't have the maybe the resources to be a stay-at-home mom or dad. And now everything is going virtual. It's a virtual school. So how does your kid learn? How does your kid advance in, in, a, in a graded system where there's going to be SOLs and everything? How does your child learn when they're going to be at, like a babysitter um, with all these other kids? Um, when they're at a daycare setting? You know, maybe when, where you don't even have internet access at your house. I mean, it's, I mean, I can see that already. It's not even started yet. And I can just see the inequality starting already. Um, So those are the ways I see it kind of. Also, if you, if parents don't speak English, it's another thing too, you know, how are they supposed to help the kids with the assignments and getting online when maybe, you know, you're from a rural place or something, or, you know, even if you're not like, and you do speak English, like, I mean, it's a tricky thing to figure out. I can't imagine. Yeah. There are many listeners who also care deeply about immigration issues, as well as the targeting and marginalization of the Latino immigrant community, but they might not know what they can do. Mm -hmm. What would you suggest might be some particular actions that we could take or perhaps groups that we can support? Um, I would say, uh, like, I have found that looking into, like, some grassroots organizations in your area are good. I, I, I'm no longer a part of it, and I feel bad because I, I, I have, I just wasn't able to attend meetings. I still get the emails, but I, I'm part, I was part of Virginia Organizing, and I'm guessing there is stuff like that for different states. In Virginia, there's a thing called Virginia Organizing, which is a grassroots movement that kind of goes in and says, you know, we need more equity in these areas, you know, and also gives information to communities that need a way to get the information to them, you know, or may not know about certain things. And so I would recommend kind of looking into the grassroots organizations in your area. And also, like, there's things like you can look up hashtags, maybe called like for abolish ice or Defund ICE, I think, are two things. Um, I think Abolish ICE is the main one. So it's like Abolish and an ICE with the big capitals. And and that is, you could probably learn if your local area has a contract with ICE, the immigration um, enforcement thing, where anybody who is undocumented, if they get into the local jail for any infraction, they will get deported. They call ICE and they just come in and they sweep it. They sweep the jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and right here in our area, we have, um, there's ice is, we have an ice presence mm-hmm. for a lot of years. They went in and they swept the poultry plants. And uh, several years ago, I remember my ex explaining that he was at work and ice came in and I mean, it was, there was a lot of people that were undocumented working there at that time. And that people just ran. He said that they He watched them, and they were climbing over the fences to get out. You know, it's just, it was sad. So I mean, just like, you know, so so ICE, it's just, oh, it's not a good thing. So abolish ICE, I think, would be a good hashtag to to learn about things in your area. Because if that's in your area, uh, that's doing a lot of harm to immigrants. Who wants to call the police if you're going to get deported? You know, if they take both of you into custody, and then you're in there. And you're, and you're gone. Right. Yeah, I mean, in, in Cincinnati, where I live, so the city is a sanctuary city, mm-hmm. but then the county 
contracts with ice. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it might like, be the same thing here. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of, so it's, it's sort of like a, sort of like a weird thing. So it's like, you know, okay, it's sort of a sanctuary city, but not really uh-huh. because of the right. county. And I mean, the, the county jail is in downtown Cincinnati. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Yeah. yeah ours I mean, is the county jail. It's in the middle of the city. Is that what you said for yours yeah. too? Yeah. It's, you know, mm-hmm. yep, it's down, it's downtown Cincinnati. Like the, I mean, um, so that's Hamilton where county everyone jail. goes in ours. There's no other city. There's no other jail. It's the Rockingham County jail. I just had another thought. You can also support local businesses that are Latino or, you know, immigrant uh, based. And that's a great way to support local immigrants. You know, go to your local taco trucks, ask around if people know of like markets or tiendas, you know, you can go to learn about your city, learn about where you live, your town. There's going to be places that you probably don't know about and you can support those places instead of going to like McDonald's or like you know, another giant corporation, you can go to like a small place. And one, there's probably a lot less people there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, less uh, COVID exposure. And two, you know, you're helping out like a mom and pop store, but for immigrants. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely like on the support local train. That's mm-hmm. something that we we're really passionate about. I can't speak for other places, but I know here in Cincinnati, a number of local restaurants and retailers are Mm -hmm. owned by immigrants yeah there's a lot so i think you just look around and i think one thing that i'm i i try to be aware of because i do like to write a lot of angst my girlfriend always like jokes with me about that that i love angst um which is (laughs) so true i love my angst um but also like celebrating the wonderful things about cultures too you know oh yeah Finding the fun things, and you know, you can learn a lot of stuff, um, music, culture, food, art, you know, there's a whole lot of wonderful things just out there that, that if you don't know about it, you don't know until you know. Right. Yeah. Like there's a whole world that is in our backyard. <laughs> exactly. And you uh, don't have to be in a giant city to find it. You know, you can just ask around and, and learn all this cool stuff that you just don't even know about. And if you are in a big city, gosh, you, you have a lot of things you can find out. Oh, yeah. So so when do you anticipate finding Siguradad will be out? Well, I, I'm hoping October timeframe. I don't know the exact release date yet. Um, and the pre-order when you put up this podcast will be up on Amazon. So you can pre-order it. Let's talk a little bit about what is next for you. Okay, well, um, I have already written Finding Paz, which is the word for peace. Um, and that is my th- the third book in the, in the Buscando Home series, finishing out the trilogy. And I can't, I can't really give any spoilers, but, you know, they may or may not find peace. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, that's going to wrap it up and maybe like, you know I don't like nice little bows. If you've read, <laughs> you know, Dream, yeah. but it's well, least wrapped isn't up. like that. And I like and that's one thing I like about your stuff is like it's more it's realistic in that. Yeah. Way. So there's gonna it's not gonna be a nice little bow, but uh, it's gonna be interesting. That's for sure. First draft was uh is is a is was a hoot. I had I enjoyed writing it. It was great, and so I'm excited to to edit book three and finish out the series, and then I I actually. I have a fourth story brewing that I'm going to be writing in November during NaNoWriMo, 
which is maybe all the genres. It's like a les- lesbian Christian romance with also a Latina in it. There's it's too many genres to put on Amazon, probably. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'll figure it out. <laughs> I know I'll figure it out. But I'm really excited for that story. And yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited for that story. And then just as like a like a side note, as of another giant series that I've written, I've also written a children's series called Prince Miguel and His Journey Home, based on my, um, I wrote, I started it in the NICU with my son. And it's just like a really awesome fantasy series, kind of, I think, middle grade novel. And that's something that get I'm getting excited about working on that as well. It's kind of cute because I don't, I, it's been a while since I've written them. Like, I think I wrote them, I think it was 2015, 16 and 17. And so my son now, as I put him to bed every night, He'll say, tell me more about Prince Miguel. And so I'll tell him a little bit of the stories, like, every night. And so that's just something that I've been doing. And so I, I want to work on those as well. But I think first I'm going to be finishing up this, this trilogy and, you know, working on that, that lesbian romance and that I'm excited about as well. So how can listeners reach out to you? Well, I am on Facebook. Uh, I have an author page. It's Allison K. Garcia author. I'm also, I'm also under that same in Instagram. It's Allison K. Garcia author, a, the writer on Twitter. And I have a newsletter that you can figure out how to sign up for if you go on my, um, my Facebook author page. And um, I have a Facebook group as well called Readers and Dreamers where I'm going to have an online launch party uh, in October sometime. So yeah, you can get a little bit of all those different things. Um, you know, and I'm, you know, that you can email me once you're, you're signed up for my newsletter, you can always email me. You can contact me on my Facebook author page or Instagram, Twitter. I'm a little bit more hit or miss on, but I would say those are the best ways to, to, to reach out to me. And I'm always happy to talk to my readers. Awesome. Allison, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Well, I've enjoyed talking with you as always, and I hope that your listeners enjoy it as well. Oh, I'm sure they will. And like, I'm glad that you came on. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to Pastor Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstarpodcast.com slash download and links to the podcast on various apps are listed right there. If you subscribe, new episodes will download once they come out, so you don't have to wait. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review on your choice app. And my second house is Twitter, apparently. So follow me there at PotstarCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.